God is good? And all the time? Aren't you glad to be an American? I'm thankful that uh, we have the freedom uh, to, to gather in person and online as well and just to worship Jesus today. I'm thankful for all of uh, those men and women who have fought for our freedom. I'm thankful that, uh, you know, as I have traveled uh, a lot of different places, I would say I am, I'm thankful that I was born in America and I'm, I'm proud to be an American and so I'm thankful for that. Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We are in our fifth week of this series entitled The Church is Essential. And as we think about this uh, reality, the church is essential because Jesus is essential and the church is to be the hope of the world. It's God's plan for the redemption of mankind. And so uh, the question we have to ask ourselves is we understand through Scripture the church definitely is essential but is the church effective, or have we been effective? And so as we uh, look at Revelation 2, let me kind of give you just some background a little bit. Maybe if you, this is your first time with us in this series, I'll kind of catch you up really quickly. Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, we see that uh, John was writing the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he's exiled on the island of Patmos, Patmos because he chose to live his life for Jesus. And so he has been persecuted. He's been exiled. While he's on the island, Jesus comes to him in a vision. The vision we see is that uh, there's seven lampstands, and these lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so in the midst of the lampstands is the presence and the person of Jesus Christ. And we see a picture of who Jesus is in Revelation chapter 1. Then we looked, uh, really kind of our introductory series or into uh, the series was uh, one word could, could really define that message, and that was glory. That we as a church is our responsibility to display the glory of God. We are to display the glory of God. And, and we talked about the fact that sometimes sin in our life can dim the glory of God in His church. Uh, when we got to the first letter, which is written to the church at Ephesus, they were known as the loveless church. And so the one word for that week was love. And we made this statement that in order for us to glorify God best, we must love him most. That Jesus must be our first love, our first priority. Last week we talked about death. And as John wrote to the church at Smyrna, it was the persecuted church. And this is one of two of the seven letters that has no uh, reprimand or no caution. It was just simply to thank you for being faithful. And the, the encouragement was be faithful until death. And, and so we understand that we can be faithful because Jesus is faithful. Today the word, uh, really the one word we're going to talk about is truth. Uh, truth. And when we understand what truth is and who truth is. Now we have a tendency, or maybe I should say I have a tendency sometimes when I am faced with a situation or a problem or an issue, I sometimes have a tendency just to want to ignore it. Does anybody else also do the same thing? You know, like years ago, I used to hear people say, I, I have so many bills, I'm not checking the mail. Now, I never did that, mainly because Joy checks the mail, but now it's like I'm not checking my email. How many of you avoid your email sometimes because you know there's problems that you're going to have to face? And so maybe for... Dads, I'll kind of um, step on your toes a little bit. Maybe it's you dads who heard your little child crying while you were sleeping, but 
somehow miraculously, you, you just never woke up. You never heard that, that noise, right? Or kids are fighting in the other room. Parents, you ever done that? You just kind of like, well, the scream isn't that bad yet, so it's probably okay. It's usually when they're quiet, that's when you have to kind of worry about it. Like, that's what I say when our kids were crying. They're crying. That means they're breathing. They're good. Let them go. Now, when we were in Costa Rica, this is years ago as a youth pastor, one of our students uh, decided to pull a prank on the girls. And in the middle of the night, I hearing all this happen, but I just, like any responsible adult, pretended like I was sleeping. And he uh, pulls the prank, the girls are screaming, they come running into my room, and guess what I continued to do? Ignore the problem. I just pretend like I was asleep. And the next morning they woke me up to tell me all these things. I was really, I'm so shocked. I, I slept right through that. Uh, some of us have a tendency to, to ignore our health, right? Like we don't want to go to the doctor because the doctor's going to find something wrong. And the truth is ignoring our problems doesn't usually help, does it? It doesn't usually make them go away. It usually makes them get worse. And I think as Christians and maybe even specifically sometimes as churches— we do the same thing when we're dealing with the devil. If we ignore him, maybe he will ignore us. And the truth is, as we've walked, we just came out of Ephesians 6, right? We know that we're in a spiritual battle, and we, we need the spiritual armor to stand against the, the old King James word was wiles or the schemes of the devil. Peter says that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we understand this, but oftentimes we want to ignore it. But we have to understand that Satan's main attack, his main weapon has always been, even when we go all the way back to the garden, it was lie. Lie versus truth. And John chapter 8 says that, that, that Satan is the father of lies, and there is no truth in him at all. So when we think about followers of Christ, that there is Satan, the father of lies, but there is Jesus, truth. And truth always defeats lies. But there is a little caveat here. Truth can defeat lie when we know it, when we believe it, and when we apply it. And that's where sometimes we get ourselves in trouble. So that's kind of, as we think about the church of Pergamos, the danger of believing the lie. It always leads us away from truth. It always leads us away from God. It always leads us into something else. As we, uh, as we believe the lies of Satan, it moves us away from God. But understanding moving away from God is always also moving us towards something else. We're going to see in this text in Revelation 2, they speak specifically uh, to immorality, speak specifically then also to idolatry. I think we could sum up uh, idolatry and morality in, into one word, and that is worldliness. So when we think about when we stop pursuing holiness and truth, we always drift towards worldliness and the lives of Satan. So if you're taking notes this morning, like the big idea here, so like the sermon in a sentence. So if, if you really could want to just walk out, it's the sermon in a sentence. Here it is. The church must defend and declare the truth. The church must defend and declare the truth. And that's what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse number 12. All right, so turn, if you're not there, Revelation 2 verse 12. This is um, the, the letter written to the church at Pergamos. All right, verse number 12. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things say, He who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed of idols. Again, as we mentioned, idolatry. And to commit sexual immorality. Again, we're kind of summarizing what he's talking about here in this one thought of worldliness. Because of worldliness. All right, then verse number 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which, I, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one accepts him who receives. No one knows except him who receives. And the last part of 17, we'll get to this at the end, but I just want to point out uh, there's not really a clear description of what Jesus is trying to say here, but what the understanding of this last part is, that if we if we follow truth, if we stand for truth, what, what the outcome is is that we will receive the presence and the power and the blessings of God. So as we think about this thought, I, I want to look at verse 17 again. We've, been, we've done this the last few weeks uh, in verse 17. You see this in every single letter, this statement, those who haven't hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if you're online this morning, what I want you to do is just kind of make this Conscious decision that I'm going to listen. And so the last few weeks I've had you type in there, God, I'm listening. For those of us in the building, okay, we've done this three weeks in a row now. At the count of three, I just want you to say those words, God, I'm listening. Everybody shake your head like we're good, we're awake, we're going to do this. All right, one, two, three. God, I'm listening. God, I ask this morning that as we have declared we want to hear from you, that we are listening that as you speak to us, we would respond properly. And Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so three ways to defend and declare the truth. If, if we as a, as a church are, are supposed to defend and declare the truth, how can we do that? The first one is this. Number one, if you're taking notes, hold the truth with conviction. Hold the truth with conviction. So in the very first part of this letter, as he's right into the church of Pergamos, and, and he says in the very first verse, verse 12, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, this is Jesus talking to John. He's referencing himself. Jesus is saying, the one who's telling you to write these things is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's referencing back to Revelation chapter 1. And remember in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is just revealing himself to John. We see the picture of who he is. And in every letter, at the beginning of these letters, you're going to see like a one-sentence statement referencing back to Revelation chapter 1, who Jesus is. In, in this particular one, he's saying, Jesus, the one with the two-edged sword. And these statements in each letter. So in Ephesus, he said, he who holds the seven stars in his hands. He's referencing Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. When he wrote the letter to Smyrna, he said, it's the first and the last. Again, refer referencing Revelation 1, verse 10. And the reason that he's referencing specifically the two-edged sword is because it's specific to this church. 
And the reason it's important for us as a church, for us as followers of Jesus, to know who Jesus is, is because if we completely, if we get a clear picture of who Jesus is, it will determine our direction, it will determine the direction of the church. If we have a, a false sense of who Jesus is, it will misdirect us. And so Jesus wants them to understand who he is. Specifically to the church, what he wants the church at Pergamos to understand is Jesus is ultimate authority. Jesus is in control. So why would he use these specific things? Talking about the sword. Well, Pergamos at the time was known as it was the home of the proconsul. Well, what does that mean? It was there. Uh, I'll just kind of give you some bullet points. It was the highest civil authority. It was the seat of military power. It was the seat of judicial power of Rome at this time. And here's what Pergamus, the city, was known as. The ones who hold the sword. The ones who hold the sword. What does that mean in reference to Pergamus? Again, as he's writing to this church. It means that they determine who lives and who dies. Because they're the highest civil authority, because they're the seat of the military power, those things I just mentioned. So what he's saying to the church at Pergamos, I understand that there's fear of the sword, the government, because they are killing Christians. But I also want you to understand that Jesus is the ultimate authority and has ultimate power. He is the one we are to fear above man. Jesus is our ultimate authority. Which reminds me of what Jesus said. We referenced last week, John chapter 14. The first four verses talk about when Jesus is talking to the disciples. Remember he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. Then he goes on to describe that he's going to leave and go to heaven. He's going to prepare a place for them. And that he's going to come back for them. That where they are, where he is, they may be also. And so then in verse number 6 of John chapter 14, as he's just told them, hey, I'm going to go and prepare a place. Don't worry, I'm coming back, and if you believe, I'm going to take you with me. And in verse 6 he says, he tells them the way to believe. You, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to God. No one gets to the place that I'm preparing unless they come through the truth, Jesus. Jesus is ultimate authority. So we want to hold the truth with conviction, and the truth is Jesus. And Jesus also said in verse 6 of John 14, I am what? The Word. Here's the truth. Do you believe that this Bible is the truth for all mankind? Do you believe that the Bible is ultimate authority? Do you believe the Bible tells us how we should live and act and respond to people? Then we should hold on to the truth with conviction. Which leads to number two. Number two, stand for truth with courage. Stand for truth with courage. So look at verse number uh, 13. It says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's a pretty strong statement about the city of Pergamos. Okay, we understand that they're like the authority, they're the sword. They're also what would be described as the intellectual and religious capital of Rome at this time. They were filled with temples and idols and all over, and, and it was the center of emperor worship. And what they were required to do, and as you study history, many 
followers of Jesus were killed because they chose not to say these words, Caesar is Lord. In fact, uh, they would speak the other. Well, look at verse 13. Let's read the rest of it. So what Jesus wants them to know is, I understand your struggle. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Like Satan has a stronghold in Pergamos. I understand how difficult it is for you to follow Jesus. And then he goes on. You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He uses that term again. I understand Jesus saying to the church that the authority of the government is, is persecuting. I understand that even one of your own members of your church was, was killed probably because he chose not to say, Caesar is Lord. And I would guess that the last words he spoke were not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And so he's saying, listen, I understand how difficult it is. It's a reminder for us, even in our current culture, to realize that sometimes being a witness for Jesus, even in, in our workplace, is going to take courage. That possibly taking a stand for those of you students at school is going to take courage. That even for some people, even in our culture, to take a stand for Jesus in their own home is going to take courage. We see here in a minute that even in their church, to stand for truth may take courage. And we as a church cannot stand with conviction and hold the conviction of truth and say, yes, this is the word of God in the building and choose not to do it outside of the building. It's not just the four walls of this building. It's like the sign you see out when you walk out of here. It's time to go be the what? Church. And what is the church supposed to do? Display the glory of God. How do we display the glory of God is, well, we're going to have to hold the truth with conviction. We're going to have to stand for truth with confidence. And the third one is we must protect the truth. And this is where it gets difficult with confrontation. And so let's keep reading. Verse number 14. So all this, you, you stood strong in the midst of persecution. You, you, you didn't deny me. You continued to pursue me. And then verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those. And some translations would say some. So there are some people in the church, continue to read, who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Again, as we summarized that before, is this, this idea of they are pursuing worldliness. It's kind of the opposite of what Paul said in Romans. Don't be conformed to the image or the philosophy or the ideology of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so Jesus is saying some in the church are pursuing worldliness They've bought the lie of Satan that you can have satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy outside of Jesus. Verse 15, thus you also, it continues this, this uh, reprimand, you have those or them, there's some, who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So what Jesus is saying to the church is, Yes, you've been, you've been strong in your faith and you've, you've held with conviction and, and you've stood firm and even in the spite of persecution, you have not denied my name. But there are some who are clearly living in sin. 
And what he's saying to the church is that some are clearly living in sin, and the way the church was not responding to the sin in the church is that they were casually dealing with sin. And so for us as followers of Jesus, for us as a church, it's our responsibility when we see other church members not pursuing holiness, but drifting towards godliness, that we should confront them. If they're drifting towards worldliness. I said that backwards, didn't I? How many of you caught that? I saw several people's looks like, that guy, I don't know what he's talking about. All right? So we're, when someone is, is not pursuing holiness and they're drifting towards, you say it? Hey, worldliness, you got it right. Then as a church, we should confront them privately and speak the truth. What's the key? The truth in love. In love. And, and Matthew spells out how we're to do that. We're to, to go one-on-one if they don't listen, and we've done it right, the right way, truth in love. We take someone else, and, and, and it's just the responsibility of the church to confront sin, and he's talking about specifically in the church. What we have a, as a church have a tendency to do, though, is to point out all those sins that we're not involved in. Like, it's easy for us to get mad about, let's use quotes, the big sins that we don't deal with, But it gets a little more difficult when we look inward and see our own sins. It was kind of illustrated with two pretty famous uh, historians or people of history. Uh, Most of you are probably familiar with the person named D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists. Then there's another man named Charles Spurgeon who was one of the greatest theologians. And they had never met, and they were, uh, D.L. Moody was excited to meet Spurgeon. He knocks on his hotel door to say hi. As Spurgeon opens up the door, D.L. Moody is shocked because Spurgeon is smoking this big cigar. My assumption is Spurgeon is probably going to take a big puff, you know, and blow it right in his face or whatever. And D.L. Moody is like, how, this is the words he said, how, O man of God, can you smoke that cigar? And you know what Spurgeon's response was? Again, my assumption as he takes another puff on the cigar, he says, How or he says the same way, old man. And he points to his really big stomach and says, You can be so fat. It's easy to see someone else's faults. It's not so easy to look inward and see our own faults. And so when we stand for truth. We have to first, before we confront those who are in sin, look, look inward first. That's what David prayed. Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way. See, see if there's, there's something in here I need to deal with. And, and when we deal with this, then God has called us to deal with others and to bring them. And here's the reason why. Sometimes as a church, it's... Um, we, we see it as harsh to confront sin. Maybe as individuals, we see it as harsh to confront sin. And, and probably a lot of the reasons we fail to do it is because we're not so sure there's something in our life that we have our own blind spots. But here's, the, here's why it's important. Look at verse number 16. Again, Jesus is talking to the church, and he's just called out and said, there's some who are pursuing, uh, they're not pursuing holiness. They are drifting to, towards worldliness. They are involved in these sins, and, and yet the majority of you are not dealing with it. 
You're casually dealing with sin. And so what does he say? He says to the church in verse 16, repent. Now this word repent and who he's speaking to specifically is the church who's not doing the sins, the immorality, worldliness. He's not telling those who are involved in the worldliness to repent. He's telling the church, the quote-unquote, you know, good people, they should repent. But why should they repent? It says, for else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Who is them he's talking about? It's them who are falling into idolatry and immorality. And so what Jesus is telling us as followers of Jesus, if you see a fellow brother or sister in Christ who is pursuing worldliness, it's your responsibility to confront them in truth and love because if we as a church choose not to confront lies of Satan with truth and love, Jesus says, I'm going to take care of it. So the most loving thing we can do as followers of Jesus is to confront other followers of Jesus with truth in love. Jesus is saying it's better you confront them than I have to deal with it. It's, it's kind of like uh, you might as well obey mom because soon dad is coming home. You guys understand? Wait till your dad gets home. That was the worst words I ever heard. Repent or else I will come to you quickly. Keep reading. As we mentioned earlier in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone and a stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So here's the contrast. We want to we call out sin and call people back to Christ. Because if we don't, Jesus says, I'm going to confront it. I'm going to deal with it. But then in verse 17, he says, if as a church, if us as followers of Jesus choose to deal with sin and to, to, to hold the truth, to stand for truth, to protect the truth, what he says here is that you will get to enjoy my presence. You'll get to enjoy the power and the provision of God. It's the picture. Remember the image. There's seven churches. They're lit with the glory of God. Jesus is in the midst of them. And if we as individuals, if we as a church will hold truth and stand for the truth, protect the truth, what he says is, I, you'll have my presence. You'll have my power. You'll have my provision. And as we've said almost every week, I, I don't want to be a part of a church where Jesus is not in the midst. I want to be a church that we could conclude with these three questions and I think it's important for us to ask these corporately as a church, but I think you need to ask them individually in your own life. Are you holding on to truth? And remember what we said, that truth always trumps lies, but there's this little caveat, right, that we have to know the truth, we have to believe the truth, we have to apply the truth, and how can I hold on to the truth? How can I hold on to truth if I don't know what the truth is? We all said, yeah, we believe this is absolute authority. We believe this is the word of God. We believe this tells us how to live and how to respond and how to be godly. And how much time do we put into it? I think the first step of holding the truth is you got to know the truth. We're going to hold the truth. The next question is, are you standing for truth? When, when the opportunity comes, do you have courage enough to say, 
what truth is. The third question is, are you protecting the truth? Is there people in your life that you need to have an honest, loving conversation with? And remember, before you do, you better evaluate your own heart first. God, am am I walking with you? Are there blind spots? I would encourage you, if you don't have someone in your life that you have given permission to, to call you out, you need to have someone to do that. You need someone in your life that can, you've given them permission to say, hey, when you see a bad attitude, when you see some of my posts on Facebook, when you see some of the things I tweet, I'm giving you permission to call me out. Maybe not publicly, but call me out privately. Hey, you you shouldn't be saying that. Because we all have blind spots. We need people to to confront us. So I'm going to deal with my sin, and then I'm going to confront those who I have a relationship with, that I go to church with, that I see are pursuing the wrong things. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment this morning. And I I just want to end this part of the service this morning with just giving you an opportunity maybe to do some self-evaluation. You know, we are living in an interesting time where a, a, a piece of paper that I wear on my, on my face could be so, such a, a divisive thing. And it, doesn't that seem absolutely ridiculous? That I make a political statement by wearing a mask or not? And, and I'm only pointing that to say it is very easy in the current culture for me in my own life to become bitter, to become judgmental, and to pursue things that are not making me godly. And so I just want you to take a few minutes here just to evaluate your own life, to pray the prayer of David, God, would you reveal sin in my life? Would you reveal a root of bitterness maybe that's come into me? And when we, as we've made the statement, God, I'm listening. If he reveals to you something in your life, the the theme in Revelation here is going to be repent. And I'm thankful that God is faithful and just to forgive me of all my unrighteousness. God, I ask this morning that as we finish our song in in, in music and worship that we would as we say these words God we understand you are over all you are sovereign you are king of kings you are lord of lord you're the first and the last the one who is dead who now is alive the one who was the one who is the one who is to come God almighty and we declare today as a church Jesus is lord may we pursue you May we pursue truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.